Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you the greatest sports journalist in the history of Erie, Pennsylvania, Mr. Mike Balco. My boy, my boy Michael Balco, writer, podcaster, sports enthusiast. He is the first guest that we have on the Black and Gold Hour podcast this year. He had just contributed, and he also has his own podcast, The Mike Belco Show. Uh, I want you all to uh, welcome Mr. Mike Belco. Today, to speak about the New Orleans Saints is Michael Belco from The Michael Belco Show. Host of The Michael Belco Show, please welcome Michael Belco. What is up? What is up? What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Michael Balco Show. We got a really, really, really special one today because if you guys are listeners for a long time, you guys know that I'm a big-time New Orleans Saints fan. So, with that being said, joining me today is a very special guest. He's a 10-year NFL wide receiver, an East Carolina alum, and the co-host of the Believe in Saints podcast, Terrence Copper. How are we, brother? Mike, how you doing, man? <laughs> I'm blessed and highly favored, as always. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I can't complain at all. Exactly, exactly. You gotta, you gotta just live life like that, man. You just gotta go through the motion, just vibe out. You feel me? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> First and foremost, let's rep the hometown. What's your uh, hometown? Tell us about your hometown of Washington, North Carolina. What makes it so unique? Ah, just definitely in my hometown, Washington, North Carolina, uh, located in the eastern part of North Carolina. Uh, small town, probably about around about ten thousand people there. Uh, one high school. You know, everybody got to go to the same high school, but we got about five different schools you got to go to before you get to high school. You know, so uh, just with first grade, second grade, third through fifth, it's like so many different schools you go to before you get to high school. But I love my hometown. Uh, uh, Washington is what made me who I am now. The good things I went through and the bad things I went through growing up in hometown makes me who I am today. Yeah, most definitely. I think everybody can say that about their hometowns, too. Um, especially if you really invest yourself into your hometown mm-hmm. um, and and you just you bought out in your hometown. We're about to touch on that because you went to Washington High School, the one high school that y'all got, man. <laughs> you graduated <laughs> as the school's record holder in several receiving statistics. Tell us about your recruiting process out of high school, how you helped yourself create exposure and ultimately what led you to East Carolina. Uh, you know what? Coming out of high school. Uh, until I got eligible because I got eligible late. I didn't get through the clearinghouse late. And the clearinghouse, for everybody that that doesn't know it, is when you send your NCAA work in for uh, your GPA and your SATs, ACTs, those got to match up on a scale. Uh, And so that's where I was at. So I kind of I had I kind of was a little a late bloomer when it came to being eligible. So I did my my recruits. East Carolina, they committed to me early. Or I committed to them early in my junior year, and I tell you why I get into that why a little later. But uh, but once I did get eligible, uh, Notre Dame they offered, Kentucky offered, Penn State offered, which I'm a huge Penn State fan, and I tell you why I didn't go to Penn State, but I'm a huge Penn State fan. Uh, Wake Forest offered, uh, NC State offered, uh, but I ended up going to East Carolina because my my wife now my girlfriend at the time was pregnant with Terrence, my youngest son. That's at East Carolina now, you know. So uh, that gave me a lot of reason to kind of stay closer to home. East Carolina is probably about 
30 minutes away from my hometown. You know, so uh, once we found out she was pregnant, uh, they gave me more reason to kind of stick around. But then the reason why I didn't go to Penn State, which Penn State probably been the only school that would have flipped me to go from East Carolina, was because when they called my high school coach, they was like, Coach, we coming down to offer Copper. Uh, this was Jay Paterno, Joe Paterno's son. Uh, we coming down to offer uh, Mr. Copper. Uh, is he excited? My coach told him, don't come. He already committed East Carolina. So, so he didn't offer me. They didn't offer me. But that's the reason why I didn't go to Penn State. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm thankful for my coach for making that decision for me because it worked out perfect. It worked out perfect. Damn, coach was tripping, dog. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. He said, we are not going to Penn State. Exactly. <laughs> so, oh, you, it did end up working out for you, which is good. And it and, did. And, in hindsight, because you balled out, you were the, one of the best receivers, probably one of, if not the best receiver to ever play at East Carolina. Uh, you also became the first player in school history to receive all CUSA honors. Um, so we talked about your transition or we talked about your journey to East Carolina. What are some mm -hmm. things that you did to help you transition from high school ball where there's one high school in the city um, to playing at a major division one school and not just playing there? excelling there um so what was your transition like to college football and how tedious of a transition was it well the transition was still tough uh it wasn't as tough as some people when it comes to the athletic side of it uh the more transitioning for me the toughest transition part for me was the academic side of things uh because growing up where i come from you know i didn't have that father figure in the house uh, my mom worked all the time so i was raised my grandmother i mean my mom was there but she worked a lot so I never had that person in the house telling me, do your homework, get your homework done, helping you study. So everything that I've that I've learned or when I was in high school, my study habits was really just off of me. It wasn't because I was inspired by an adult to do work, you know, because I was raising my grandmother. So the transition part for the academics when I went to college was a little bit tougher than it was for the athletic size and the reason why the athletic size that transition was so much easier not easy but it was easier and I came in and played as a true freshman was because of the weight room when I was in high school uh, we had a great weight room program and when I got to high school my max was like 120 sheesh yes it was 120 my freshman year but by the time I graduated high school I was benching over 300 pounds and go. running the 4 4 and the 40 you know so and I was 190 and I came in at 165, so I was a big receiver. But that was the reason why my transition was so much easier when it came to the football side of things was because of the work ethic that I put in in the weight room. So going on the football field was a little easier than it would have been if I wasn't as strong or as fast. Yeah, and one thing people don't realize, man, about you know taking that next step and playing college football is literally the academic side of it, man. Like they completely forget that that still exists. Yes. Like you're still a student athlete. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, <laughs> I mean, really the only thing changing is that you're just putting on a little different uniform and you're playing a little higher level, but you know, you still got to go out there. You still got to get them grades up or else you ain't going to be playing. You know what I mean? And, and, and then the procrastination of it, me procrastinating to do work, you know, mm -hmm. the teacher give us work on Mondays, not due to Wednesday. I wait till Wednesday or Tuesday night to get it done. You know, so it was just all over the place when it comes to procrastinating. My time management was off. Uh, it was just bad when I first started out. 
Yeah, man. That's when I realized college wasn't for me. I was procrastinating in high school, dog. So I was, yeah, ah, yeah I'm just uh, chill. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you ball out, like you said, you ball out as a true freshman. You ball out there. Um, you you play there for four years. Um, but despite a massive senior season at East Carolina, you went undrafted in the 2004 NFL draft. Now, did going undrafted add a chip to your shoulder? Um, and what did you do to set yourself apart from other receivers um, and stand out to the coaching staff for the Dallas Cowboys and make the roster for them? So so me going undrafted was the reason why I didn't get drafted. Uh, I ended up getting into an altercation, going back to my hometown, you know, in college, you know, hanging out with guys I shouldn't have been hanging out with, and I ended up getting into an altercation. And I ended up getting into a fight and we ended up going to court for it. And so I, I got charged for fighting a month before the draft. And this happened, this happened my junior year, the summer of my junior year, but we didn't end up going to court for it until uh, a month before the draft, because we was kind of pushing everything off, prolonging everything just in case I got suspended my senior year of college. You know, so me not getting drafted was definitely for that reason. But what it did, it added a chip to my shoulder, but it humbled me. It humbled me uh, so much because at a split second, it could been taken away from me. Football could have been taken away off a decision, off a, a bad decision that I made. And you have to think about it. So I played varsity all four years as a freshman. I mean, in high school, even as a freshman, I started on varsity. And then when I got to college, uh, I didn't red shirt. I was a true freshman all, and I played all four years. So me having a, or running the possibility of taking a year off or being suspended or not making the NFL team is humbling when you're just constantly playing football at the highest level, even when you're younger than everybody else. So it's humbling to know that it could have been taken away from me, but it also put a chip on my shoulder. So once I got to camp, you know, I didn't go in big headed. I didn't go in like I was the man. I went in trying to learn everything I could learn. And I just worked my butt off. I just I just worked hard as I could work and just try to outwork the next person beside me or the or the person I was going against. So that was really what what helped me. And it also was it was kind of a gift and a curse, me getting into that altercation because it, it stopped me from being big headed and it, it did put a chip on my shoulder, but it also humbled me. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, man. And, and people don't, people also don't realize that, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. literally every minute detail is, is discovered and it's always right before you get drafted or exactly. right before the draft is coming out. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that you were able to just, you know, take it head on and just be like, yeah, man, I did it. You know, you just, you just mm -hmm. fucking grew from it. You know what I mean? It's, it's yep. dope, man. And it's inspiring. Um, but during your time at Dallas, you know, you played for them for a couple of years. Who are some players that really like, especially, you know, considering you're an undrafted guy, who did you really like try to learn from and who kind of took you under their wing a little bit and showed you the ropes? Uh, so Keyshawn Johnson, uh, he kind of took me under my, took me on his wing and kind of showed me the ropes, gave me a lot of knowledge, not just on the field, but off the field. Uh, Terry Glenn, you know, the late Terry Glenn, you know, he died, I want to say a couple of years ago uh, in a car accident. So, but Terry Glenn also taught me a lot of things. Uh, so those two guys really taught me a lot, not just on the football field, but off of the field. One thing that Keyshawn always told me, 
he was like, cop, he said, right now, what we living in right now is la la land. This is not real life. It was like your life doesn't start until after football is over with because playing football in the NFL, this is not real life. You know, who makes, I mean, maybe 1%, but who makes the amount of money we make in this amount of weeks? You know, you're not, this not going to happen if you got a regular job. You're not going to make, you know, this amount of money uh, right out of college. You know, it's not going to happen, you know. So, but what he was telling me is, you know, your life doesn't start until after football is over with. So the people that you meet and the money that you make, is a good start to life when you're done. So keep those connections when the people that you meet, keep those connections. And then the money that you make, you know, make sure you're saving it, investing it, because all those things give you a good start to life once life really starts. And that starts after football is over with. So they gave me a lot of information, man, when it came to just little things on and off the field. Nice. You got to love that too, man. That's just, I mean, he's, he's an incredible receiver in his own right too and it's just Mm -hmm. it's just cool he's able to just take you under like that and and show you the ropes and and not view you necessarily as competition but view you as a brother which is awesome yeah Um, in 2006 you were picked up by the new orleans saints (laughs) reuniting with sean payton um obviously he was your he was your coach over in uh dallas um and, and that was the start of a brand new era in New Orleans. All, all New Orleans Saints fans know that 2006 was never, you know, shit started to change for the better. You know, we mm-hmm. brought in Drew Brees. We brought in my boy Terrence Copper. <laughs> and we brought in Sean Payton, obviously. Um, how did it feel knowing you made a big enough impression on Sean Payton that he chose to bring you with him to a brand new organization? You know, it felt good. It felt good. But once I got there, once they brought me, I thought I was going to get cut the next day. <laughs> Look, I never knew. And don't get me wrong, it's hot in Dallas because that's why I just came from Dallas. But I never knew how muggy and how humid it got in New Orleans until I got there. And once I got there, we practicing outside, even though we got an indoor facility, we was outside practicing. I'm like, oh, my God, they about to cut me. I don't think I can. (laughs) I don't even think I can handle this humidity down here. But anyway, so the first day, the first couple of days was rough for me. It was rough when it came to the heat. But I got through it, uh, and and history is history. But it felt good that knowing Coach Payton wanted me to come on with come on with the Saints. Um, one thing he knew that I was good in that locker room, that I wasn't going to be a distraction in the locker room. Uh, I was going to do the right things, you know. So I think that played a big part of it as well. Of course, and I had to be able to play football as well. But I think the biggest part of it was, you know, how I was in that locker room. Uh, and, and not just I wasn't a guy that was that was arrogant or a guy that was a me person. I was a, a team guy in uh, anything I could do for the team. That's what I was going to do, uh, regardless of what I wanted to do. It was always about what the team needed. You know, so I think that was a big part of it. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of the fact he did bring me in. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, and you were you were on that Saints roster for the first game in the Superdome post Katrina um, obviously, probably other than the Super Bowl is the biggest game in New Orleans Saints history. Um, what are some things that you remember about that game? And take us into that atmosphere, man. Oh, so many people there. Like the energy was crazy. I'm talking about from the start, from the start of even from woman up. Just walking in back into the dome just before the game started. 
two hours before the game, just walking around, getting used to the lights, you know, um, getting used to the footing. It just felt different. It felt different from the start weeks, from the time we got there until kickoff started. And once kickoff started, oh, my goodness, the energy there was. I don't even want to say it was on 10. More than 10. And then just to see grown men and it just just sticks to me all the time. I just never seen that many grown men boohoo cry the way that they were not just fans. I'm talking about players as well. I just, it was, it was a sight to see. It was chilling. Cause I just never seen it. I've never seen it and never been a part of anything like that. And of course, Steve Gleason blocking the punt, you know, that's when everything just kind of really went haywire after he blocked that punt. It went, I mean, Falcons knew they didn't have a shot after that. They knew they didn't have a shot if they didn't know going into it. But yeah, after Steve Gleason blocked that punt, man, it was, it went bananas after that. But the biggest part, man, was just really just seeing people crying and because it was, it was bigger than football. You know, you had a lot of people that lost family members in the Superdome. You know, they lost a lot of people died there, you know, and then just the fact that, you know, it was rumors that we didn't know if New Orleans was going to come back to New Orleans, you know, so it, it was just so much bigger than football. It was new. The Saints that year was, I guess you could call it. Ah, uh, a tribute. Yes. Yes, you could call it that. Definitely. Because it was bigger than football. It was bigger than football. I just never experienced anything like that. And I keep going back to just seeing these men faces. And I don't know who the guys were that was in the stands, but just to see their faces and how they were just boohoo crying. It wasn't just regular crying like they was letting it go, you know, yeah. and. And it's you still feel it, you still feel it, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I can't say enough about that night. Yeah, and and there probably never will be enough to say about that night, in all honesty, because it's just it's so much deeper than football, like you said. Yeah. It's just like the entire culture of New Orleans came out in that night. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was I was actually I was watch I was rewatching that game the other day. I was cutting it on YouTube, you know. And mm-hmm. you, my man, were actually supposed to be the one scoring that tutty after That's the. What block. I'm talking about. Let's hear it. What what happened, dog? I'm gonna tell you something. So. Curtis DeLoach, he got there before. He's the one that actually dove on it and scooped and scored with it. But it was really my fault because I got stood up at the line of scrimmage. I went too square. I didn't get my shoulders turned to get skinny to go through the hole, and and I got stood up. I'm talking about I got stood straight up, (laughs) and I got stopped dead in my tracks. So by the time I started running again, Curtis was already there and scooped it up. Come on, dog. Come (laughs) on, man. I know. See that that's when that's when cutting the film hits a little different too, because then it's like not only are you an example in the film of what not to do, then it's like, damn, you missed the opportunity to to score yeah. one of the most infamous touchdowns in Saints history. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay because you fired back later that season against the Atlanta Falcons and caught an incredible hail hail Mary touchdown from Drew Brees. So you did you did get score a pretty sweet tutty, anyways. <laughs> um, what was that moment like? And to negate any Oh, it's just he's throwing the ball up and he got lucky and caught it. Tell us the chemistry and the kind of the, 
I don't know, the game plan that kind of went around that Hail Mary touchdown pass to you? So this play, did we call it what we call it the Hail Mary? I forgot what we called it. Uh, it was something dealing with the Saints. That was our Hail Mary play. But anyway, we line up in three receivers to one side in a bunch. One receiver in the middle, one receiver to the left of him, one receiver to the right of him. But we're close to him, probably about a yard away from him. And then on the back side, you got one receiver by itself. And so, and what we're doing is the guy that's in the middle of the three receivers, if the defense got one guy in front of him that is pressing him, which that's Marcus Coast, and Marcus Coast was in that spot. He was supposed to be the jumper. He was the guy that's supposed to be jumping for the ball. I was just the, the deflection guy. I'm just waiting for the ball to deflect and just ready to react to it and make the catch. But when Marcus Coulson gets pressed at the line of scrimmage, me and him switch responsibilities. So now he just goes to the left and replaces me, and I come right off his butt and go straight down the middle, and now I'm the jumper. And now Marcus and the other receivers, are they are the reflection guys looking to get the deflection. And so he threw it up to me, and I'm looking, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try to catch it, but if I can't catch it, I'm just going to bat it somewhere because I know my guys are looking for the deflection. But when I jumped up, Drew threw it perfectly, and it landed right in my hands. It was like, didn't nobody jump with me, it seemed like. But it landed right in my hands, and it was um, a great a great moment for me. But then Reggie Bush messed my, my spike up. So I get, up, I'm, I get up, I'm about to spike the ball, and he's so excited about it. He jumps on me, and the ball slips out of my hand when I'm going to spike it, and he messed my spike up. And I want to say that was my first touchdown with New Orleans. <laughs> Come on, Reg. What you doing, dog? What you doing, dog? So whenever whenever you see Marcus, whenever you see him get, get pressed, mm-hmm. and then you switch responsibilities, what's your mindset? Are you like, oh, fuck, here we go? Or are you just like, Screw it, dog. Let's get it. <laughs> in situations like that, there is no pressure. Yeah. Who's who expects you to catch a Hail Mary? Right. You know, so so sometimes as a receiver, when there's no pressure to make a catch, those catches are easy. Because and re- when I say there's no pressure, because if you don't catch it, guess what? It's a Hail Mary. What are the chances you catching a Hail Mary anyway? Exactly. But if you do catch it, you know. It's all it's all good. Everything is all glory. You don't score the touchdown. You don't call the Hail Mary. So, like I said, that's the reason why it's no pressure. If I catch it, I catch it. If I don't, I don't. So I'm just gonna give it my best effort. And that's what happened. Caught it. Now we're sitting here chopping it up about it years later. Look at this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was it like playing with Drew Brees? Now I've interviewed several Saints players and, and they all mm-hmm. say literally the exact same thing. So we're gonna see if your answer <laughs> rolls the same. It's probably gonna be the same thing. Drew Brees. <laughs> is the ultimate leader uh when i tell you the ultimate leader he is the first person to the facility he's the last person out of facility he's the first person in the weight room you know he's always he's the last person walking off the field he's always in this in his playbook he's always studying and a guy like drew i don't care where drew is at I don't know where Drew lives at now, but if Drew, I, I told somebody before, if Drew lived in California, he called me up right now while I'm on this show. Cop, I need you to come to Cali and help me real quick. I'm coming to Cali. You take me with I, you. You can come. Right, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just telling you that's how influential and the leadership that Drew Brees has always displayed 
to his teammates and not just his teammates, but the community as well. You know, so he's always been that guy. I have nothing but high praise about Drew. Drew is the man. Yeah. And I've, I've heard nothing, nothing but that as well. Like literally his preparation and, and the way he approached literally everything is, mm-hmm. is the reason why he lasted so long in the NFL and why he had so much success in the NFL and why he is the great greatest to ever play the sport, in my opinion. Look, look and, and even after practice, we had to stay after practice just so he can get extra throws in on routes that he didn't feel comfortable throwing during the practice time. So he wanted to get those extra reps in after practice or routes that we're going to run down in the red zone. He wanted to work on those routes. So we, are, we were always working on stuff not just in practice, but after practice, uh, having meetings with him, he telling us how he wants to get out of these routes. Because at the end of the day, your receiver coach and your coaches tell you how to do certain things. But when you're on that football field and Drew tell you to do it this way, you listen to Drew. You don't really listen to the coaches. You listen to Drew. Right. And that was before like Drew was Drew. You know what I mean? Like that was yeah. when Drew was like in his like he, he's starting to come back, you know, phase like the Saints took a chance on him. You know, he's coming mm-hmm. off an, a serious injury. You know, I got his book, man. I've read it a hundred times. And uh, yeah. And so that was like before Drew was Drew and instantly. I mean, he had the respect of everybody, it seems, which is yep. just really awesome. So um, with that being said, what is the hardest hit you have ever taken in your NFL career? And then, I mean, if there's one in college that rings a bell. Maybe not rings a bell. No pun intended there, I guess. Um, <laughs> tell me about it. So the hardest hit I ever taken was I was playing for Dallas, returning the kick, and I got hit by a guy uh, for, for the Cincinnati Bengals. I still don't know who he is. I still don't know who hit me. Because <laughs> once he hit me, I was just kind of laying on a bunch of piles, like a bunch of bodies, because everybody was a special teams play, everybody on the ground. So when I got hit, I kind of fell on the pile. But he blindsided me. And so by the time I got up, I had no idea who did it because it was just so much chaos around that you don't know who hit you. So that was the hardest hit. And when I tell you I got hit so hard that my entire body went numb, I couldn't feel nothing. <laughs> but that was the hardest hit I took uh, versus Cincinnati Bengals, and I don't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> If you got hit like that every single every single play of your NFL career, how long you lasted in the NFL? Uh, I probably last a season, if that. <laughs> if that. That shit hit different, dog. It does, especially when you don't see it. Yeah. When you don't see it, that's when it definitely hits different. I'm glad that I played a uh, defense in high school and I got to deliver the hits. But <laughs> hey, some of them, some big running backs, they be they be popping you too. So I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> Pop- Following your career with New Orleans, you spent a few more years in the league with the Baltimore Ravens and Kansas City Chiefs. Um, when did you realize you were ready to hang up the cleats, and how difficult a decision was that to make? So I realized it was time to hang the cleats up when I wasn't recovering as quick. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about like my feet would hurt, my hips are hurt, my knees are hurt, my back are hurt, you know, just – Everything was just hurting on me. So if we play a game on Sunday, Monday we come in, we lift weights, uh, we work out, we run, and we watch the film. Tuesday is our day off. Wednesday we come back and we start practicing again for the upcoming for the upcoming game that Sunday. Wednesday is a tough practice. Thursday is more of a nickel practice. And then Friday is a red zone practice, red zone short yard practice. 
And then Saturday, we travel and go to the game. It's a walkthrough, then we travel and go to the game. Well, usually when I was younger, uh, I would recover. We play a game on two on Sunday. Tuesday, I'm recovered. As I got older, when it was about time for me to retire, it was still Friday. We played on Sunday. Now it's Friday going into Saturday. And I'm still not all the way recovered from the last game we played. You know, I'm still sore from that game. My feet hurting. And then it got to the point to where even during practices, as I got older, after we stretched, I couldn't even do individuals at first. I had talked to my receiver coach. Coach, I need about 10, 15 more minutes because my body not loose yet. My five-hour energy haven't kicked in yet. And my pain pills haven't kicked in yet. So I can't move right now. I'm just I'm just out here. I got to wait, you know, until I can get going. Luckily, my receiver coach, he played in the league for over, like, I want to say 13 years. So he knew exactly what I was going through. So he had some sympathy for me. But that's when I knew it was time to hang it up. I wasn't recovering as quick. And I started thinking about retirement. And anytime an athlete start thinking about retirement, it's time for him to retire. Because yeah. if you think about it, when you first get into the league or you first start playing a sport, retiring from it is not, it's nowhere in your mind because you just start and you're ready to get to it. So anytime somebody start thinking about retirement and kind of start talking about it, that lets you know it's getting close. And that was me. Uh, I, was, I started talking about it a little bit more. Uh, and my body, man, my body just told me it was time to retire. And the second question you had was the transition. Uh. Yeah, like how how difficult was it? Like how difficult was that decision to to retire? Uh, that decision wasn't that difficult because now if I hadn't if I hadn't played as long as I played, it'd have been a difficult decision because I feel like it's difficult for people that hasn't had enough of it. I had enough of it, you know. I had enough of playing it. I still love the game. Uh, I'm definitely going to get into coaching in the league just waiting for that time uh hopefully that time comes quickly but but uh that just for me i was ready to i was ready to hang it up so the transition for, or for the decision to retire wasn't as hard it's always gonna be a tough decision but it wasn't as hard as it would have been for someone that wasn't ready to give it up yet and i was i was ready you know so the transition to make that decision wasn't as tough. It was still tough, but it wasn't as tough. And then transitioning out, transitioning after football to what I do now, uh, it's kind of along the same rims that what I was doing when I was playing in the NFL. So when I used to play in the NFL, I used to come home and throw camps every summer, uh, do different things for the youth. And so I opened up a sports facility here in Winterville, North Carolina, called the Premier Sports Academy, where we train athletes in basketball, football. We do seven on seven. We do travel basketball. We do skills-specific training with receivers, O-line, doesn't matter. We do strength and conditioning, speed uh, speed training. We have after-school programs, summer programs. So we kind of got everything uh, that an athlete will want. You know, I, everything that I wish I would have had growing up uh, as an athlete. Somebody to help me with my homework and somebody to teach me the skill set that I need to get where I want to go. Awesome. I love that, man. I love when I love when athletes give back to the community and I love when they when they create things to help the next generation, man. That's what this podcast is all about. Um, 
And that's, that's clearly what you're all about as well, because the first thing you said as soon as you were done playing is that you wanted to start giving back and you wanted to start coaching. And I love that, brother. Um, I appreciate it. What is the funniest NFL story or stories? Because we could talk about this all day if you want to, that you can share. <laughs> what are some funniest, some of the funniest moments that you can think of that come to mind from your NFL or just football career as a whole? Well, one of them, I kind of told one already. I'm, I may tell you that one again, but it's another one that – one of the funniest things, one of my coaches told me, uh, this one, I was in Kansas City. Uh, I was I was a receiver, but I was always known for my blocking. You know, so I could block, and it didn't matter who you were. I could block DNs. I could block linebackers, safeties, corners. It didn't matter. Uh, I was very good at what I did uh, when it came to blocking. And so at practice, the DB coach used to always come up to me and be like, cop cop that's what he's called me cop man quit all that holding man quit all that you holding us too much quit all that holding he was like because today we only giving out two things and that's dick and bubble gum and we out of bubble gum <laughs> damn he got jokes <laughs> yeah, so that was to me that was one of the funniest phrases and he used to tell me that all the time that was one of the funniest phrases to tell me. I like, Coach, I'm going to put this on the T-shirt, and I'm going to start selling it. Do it. Dick and bubble gum. Hey, bank <laughs> off that shit, dog. <laughs> but, yeah, that was one of the funniest stories. That was one of the funniest ones. My favorite that you've told is definitely the Reggie Bush one, man. That shit's hilarious, messing up the whole spike. You would have had the Gronk spike before Gronk had the Gronk spike, dog. But Reggie, <laughs> Reggie coming through. Crazy. Yeah. What? I know you kind of touched on it. Um, but what have you been up to since retirement? So since retirement, man, I have been staying in the football world. Uh, of course, I do a podcast, uh, Believe in Saints with Blake. Uh, I also have another podcast called The War Room, an ECU podcast that we do for East Carolina University. Uh, I run this Premier Sports Academy. That's where I'm at now. I'm actually outside, uh, outside doing the doing this podcast with you right now because a lot of kids are inside and it'll get loud, but, uh, running the premier sports Academy. I'm one of the trainers here. I do the strength and conditioning training. Uh, I'm the head coach for the seven on seven team. We won the state championship three years with different age groups. Um, we do AAU basketball. We do, uh, summer leagues after school program. And then I also do, the pregame and the postgame show for East Carolina University as well. It's awesome, man. Yeah. And and you get to do it while while watching your son Terrence, uh Terrence Copper Jr., who's now mm -hmm. at East Carolina as a wide receiver, just like you were. Um, what's it kind of been like seeing him excel in his both his academic and his athletic career? And not only not only excel, but excel at the same position, dog. He's coming for your I records. Know. I know. Look, you know, the crazy thing about it is forget the on the field stuff. Forget the football stuff, you know, just by him being a uh, American American conference, all academic uh, mm. on the academic team. That's huge for me. You know, I could care less what happens on the football field. The fact that he's excelling academically, because we talked about it earlier, I struggled academically. I struggled and there's nowhere in the world I will be on nobody academic uh, all honors list, not in college. That wasn't me. So the fact to see him doing it, you know, and with him, with him growing up, like third, fourth, fifth grade, he always struggled uh, 
when it came to comprehension. You know, he struggled with that when he was growing up with comprehension. So to see him come from where he came from to where he's at now with his academics in college, uh, it's mind blowing. I can care less what happened on the football field. I'm so I'm so proud of him for what he's doing academic wise, you know, that I love it. I love it. What are some things that you've kind of, you know, taught him as he's grown up? Um, just from your own personal experience that you think he's really kind of taken with him and and has helped him get to the point where he's where he's playing at East Carolina. And like you said, it's just excelling in the classroom and, he, and he's playing well on the field, too. So is there anything that, that you can kind of think of that maybe that maybe you did or some like maybe some advice that you've given him that, you know, mm-hmm. that has really like resonated with him and just as like a piece of advice to a future dad in me and, and all the dads out there. Uh, so I've given him a ton of advice. Of course, we play the same position, go to the same college. So it's a lot of different things that I'd be able to talk to him about. But the biggest piece of advice I told him was to have a prayer life. Uh, of course, when you're in the house, you know, we're going to go to church on Sundays. We're going to have you there. You with us. You know, we're going to talk about God. We're going to pray when you in the house. But now when you off on your own, you still got to continue to have that prayer life because there's a lot of things in life that you just cannot control. You can't control the outcome of it. That's when you got to just rely on God and let him handle things that you have no control over. Uh, Because at the end of the day, if you want to do something great, you got to have him part of your life. If you want to be a one percenter in anything, you got to have a relationship with God. Uh, That's one thing I tell him Uh, that relationship with God is huge. That is the reason why I stayed in the league as long as I did. I tell them all the time, listen, there's so many great athletes out there that you honestly, you don't really know. You don't really know it until you actually get to that highest level to see how athletic these guys are. And then it humbles you because the fact that you're on the same platform they're on, you know, and how athletic they are and you're right there with them. It humbles you. It humbles you. But I also seen guys get cut that I felt like was better than me and I end up making the team, you know, so, but that ain't nothing but the grace of God, you know, give me that favor. And if you want to, if you want to be in this sport, man, you got to have some grace, you know, you can't do it on your own. Your athletic abilities alone is not what's going to do it for you because you get guys to get cut because of, you know, it could be any reason. It could be roster spots. It could be money. It could be because when the coaches brought, brought a guy in that's just his guy not saying you a bad player but this guy's his guy that he brought in so he gonna let you go and keep his guy you know so it's a lot of things you just have no control over and you gotta have that relationship with God so you don't go crazy absolutely man absolutely um and with that being said we have one last question for you Mm -hmm. um and it kind of ties in what is one piece of advice that you could you could give to anybody listening to today's show Ah, shucks. What I just said, yeah. Have get that relationship with God. And that's this for anybody. It don't have, have to be football or sports because this is what we all have to realize. Success looks different for everybody. It looks different for everybody. But the only common denominator for success is that it's going to be some hard times and you're going to struggle. And if you can't get through the hard times, And the struggling part of it, you're never going to reach the success part of it. 
And the only way you're going to be able to get through these hard times and keep us and keep a sane head is you got to have a relationship with God. He have to be the way and the light for you when you're going through your tough times, when you're trying to get to success, because that road to success is going to be tough. No matter what success looks like for you, whether you're a business owner, whether you're trying to play in the NFL, the NBA, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, it's going to be a lot of tough times that you're going to encounter. And you got to have a relationship with God to help you get through those things because stuff get tough sometimes, man, especially when you first starting out on that road to success. You know, it's going to be tough and you got to have some stand power because those are the ones that's going to make it. The ones that just keeps going and keeps going. They're going to make it, but it's going to be the ones that quit and give up on it. The ones that don't succeed. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, 10 year NFL wide receiver Terrence Copper former New Orleans Saints, Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver. Thank you so much for hopping on the show today, my man. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best in your future endeavors. Man, Mike, thanks for having me on, man. I enjoyed it. And good luck to you and your podcast and the rest. And I'd love to come on again, man, if you have any time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make sure y'all go follow my boy Terrence and all the socials. I'm going to drop them down there in the description. It's lit. And make sure y'all tune into the next episode of the Michael Balco Show. That being said, y'all have a great day. This episode of the Michael Balco Show is brought to you by Donato's Pizza. Donato's Pizza prides themselves on ensuring that every piece of their pizza is the best piece of pizza you'll ever eat. I sure love me some Donato's Pizza, and I can guarantee that you will too. Donato's has three locations in the Erie area and many more across the country. Check out your local Donato's Pizza today.